The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, are you ready for the word? Okay, if you have a Bible, pull it out. Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 16. It's a short story, uh, but one of the most powerful dynamic stories, and then we're going to have communion as we begin uh, this month of December. Can you believe it? Here we are, December. Christmas is coming. Let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and pray and ask that we, the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts, lead and guide us now into the truth, and especially this message. Lord, um, where you came and asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? It is the most important question of eternity. And to have the right answer, to know the right answer, and to give the right answer makes an eternal difference. So I pray that all those who hear this message will realize its power, its significance, its importance, um, and that they will be ready to give the right answer, as every one of us will stand uh, accountable to you. And we, we know that, uh, Lord, you have blessed us by giving us the understanding of your son, Jesus. So may he be glorified, and may every heart be drawn to him. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Okay, real quickly as we go through uh, our little life lessons here. Jesus reveals his true identity at what I call ground zero. And I'm going to tell you in a moment what I mean by that. But in Matthew chapter 16, actually we're going to start, it says in your notes, verse 14, we're going to start in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want you to notice there in verse 13, Jesus comes to Caesarea Philippi. And this is kind of their final exam for the disciples, what I, what I like to call their, this is their graduation time. And here's the deal. So Jesus picked his disciples. So they, for three years, they walk with him, he teaches them, he models for them, then he tells them how to do it, uh, which by the way, that's a very Jewish way of thinking. You, you know, uh, kind of more the Western way of thinking is sometimes you sit, you, you listen, you learn, you intellectualize, you take notes and all of that. And that's good. You can learn a lot by that. But there's nothing like actually doing. When you do it, then you really learn it and you really know it. So that's the Jewish model. So Jesus had these guys. So here's the deal. Uh, he's preparing them for three years for their final exam. Now know this, this is the way I describe it. There's one and only one question on the exam. How many think that's a, that's a, that's a good test? I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Number two, Jesus gives them the answer to the question on the test for three years. How many, how many are okay with that? 
This is what it was all about. The, all of the miracles, all of the teaching, all of the demonstration of the presence and the power and the glory of the kingdom of heaven now came down to this one question. Who do you say that I am? And what's interesting to note is where Jesus held the final exam. Not in Jerusalem, not at the temple, not along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, like the village of Capernaum, where he, his headquarters, where he did the vast majority of his miracles. But he takes them up north, further north than even the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is already in the north. But now he goes up even further to the foothills of the tallest mountain in the country of Israel, which is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. And he's in the foothills in this place called Caesarea Philippi. By the way, many of you may not know this, but did you know that in Mount Hermon, in Israel, I think it's about 10,000 feet or something like that, it snows. Did you know that you can snow ski in Israel on Mount Hermon? Most people don't have that you know, thought in their minds, but in, in the foothills on the way up to this Mount Hermon is a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was named after Caesar, uh, Caesar Philip, one of his sons. But in that, so I gotta, I gotta show you this picture. Uh, this is a picture of the area called Caesarea Philippi. Um, and so what, what I, and by the way, we're gonna be going, this is always one of the highlights to me of going to Israel. And I wanna just say one last uh, time, we're going to Israel next year uh, in May. I would love, there's nothing I would love more than to have you go with me and, and take you to Israel so that we walk where Jesus walked, we see what Jesus saw and why it's the holy ground. That's where God sent his son. That's where Jesus lived and where he walked and where he died for us and was buried and rose and ascended and his coming back. <laughs> so it's a very special land. But we go to this place, and um, so here's where Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? It is, you can see the rock there. That's, you know, solid rock, and that is a cave. You, you, right in the center there is a gigantic cave, and it, it, you see the water down below? Literally, this is at the base of Mount Hermon, and here's this giant cave that goes way, 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 way down. You know, you drop a rock and you wait a long time to hear something. It goes down toward the center of the earth. And then out of that cave flows this river, this, this water from subterranean area, and it gushes up. And from there begins flowing down the mountain and becomes the source of none other than the Jordan River as it flows into the Sea of Galilee. So here's what you need to know, though, um, as I look at the picture here. So you see the big cave in the middle, uh, and then do you see on the right-hand side, there's, it looks like a little window that's been carved out of the solid rock. That is, a, is part of an ancient temple that was made of white marble to the god, the Greek god Pan, the god of nature. And it was literally a place of idol worship, but this place of all places in the north of ancient Israel, because when Israel was uh, after Solomon and Solomon started, you know, God told, one of the things he told kings not to do, he said, don't multiply, whatever you do, don't multiply wives, because they had multiple wives back in those days. And so he says to his kings, I don't want you to multiply wives. It will get you into trouble. It will, so forth. So then Solomon went and had a thousand wives. How many here will amen to me 
A thousand wives is way too many wives. <laughs> One is enough, as God has said. So, but part of what Solomon did that for, uh, many of these marriages were arranged marriages with, you know, the goddesses and queens and princesses of other little local tribes and various territories and so forth. And what Solomon was doing was making peace with them. We will share everything together and we're all equal. And by marrying them, he let them have their own temples and their own places of idolatry and worship. And he said, look, you guys worship your gods and your mountains over here, and then we Israelis worship our God down in the Temple of Jerusalem, but we're all worshiping, we're all equal, and it led to trouble. And so literally, I want you to know this, uh, specifically why Jesus went to this place, Caesarea Philippi, to, to many of the Greek gods and goddesses and all the rest of it. The times go back even further ancient, going back to the Assyrians, going back to the Babylonians, and even going all the way back further than that to the actual times of the Nephilim. Um, literally inside of that cave, it has an ancient name that really pertains to this story. It was called the Gates of Hell. It was believed that this place, that cave, was the number one portal on the earth where the demons were, well, their gods and goddesses or idols and, and, and literally Baal. Remember the hearing about Baal confronting God, which is Baal is a outward type in wood and stone of the ultimate rebellion, which is none other than a fallen angel known as Lucifer. So this was the core of satanic, evil, demonic worship. It was literally the gates of hell, the number one portal where the demons came up to spread their idolatry, their witchcraft, their curses, uh, their control of people, communities, and all the rest of it. How interesting that Jesus goes to the gates of hell and there asks the question, so who am I? What he is doing is he is threatening the devil. He is threatening the demons. He is threatening the gods. And he is saying, I am above all. I am from eternity. I am from the Father. And literally what he is also saying is, I'm going to take the gates of hell and I'm going to rip them by their posts out of their places and I'm going to fling it and throw it to the side. You remember the story of when Samson, who was anointed mightily by God with his supernatural strength, went to the gates of one of the Philistine cities and he says he ripped the gates of the city off? He was a type and a shadow and a picture and a metaphor of the greatest strong man, Jesus Christ the Messiah, who literally didn't go to the gates of one city or one town of idolatry. He went to the gates of hell and ripped the gates of hell off its hinges. Throw it, now why is he lifting the gates of hell and throwing them aside? Because he says, I'm coming in. Because inside are men and women and boys and girls from every nation, language, kindred, and tribe that have been made slaves and have been used and have been abused by these devils and demons. 
And therefore, I'm coming after them, and I'm going to love them, I'm going to bless them, I'm going to heal them, I'm going to deliver them from demonic power, I'm going to forgive their sins, I'm going to die on the cross in their place, I'm going to give them the gift of eternal life, I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give them my nature and my holiness and my love and my grace and the salvation of eternal life. Hallelujah. That's what he's after. So, Jesus asks, well, what do the other people say? And they go, well, some say you're, you know, John the Baptist has come back from the dead, or Elijah the prophet who went in the fiery chariot, he's come back and doing miracles, or that maybe you're like Jeremiah of a prophet. The general tendency of all these answers was to underestimate who Jesus really was. And it, it, they gave him a measure of honor and a measure of respect, but it fell way short of honoring who he truly was. So in verses uh, 15 and 16, the question that Jesus asks is the question before all who hear of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it is we and not he who will be judged by our answer. He said to him, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to say, he answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, he says, you're right. You know who I am. But it wasn't by human wisdom or spirituality or that you attained. He goes, you have been given divine, supernatural revelation. My Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. So this answer, we answer this, not only when you pray and ask Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, when you get saved, when you get born again, because Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I love this about Jesus. Behold, now, without him, nothing was made that was made. All things were made by him and through him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man hath at any time seen God, but the only begotten Son, who is from the heart or the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So this is what Jesus has revealed, uh, who he is as the Savior of the world. We answer this question every day by the choices we make, by the way we live our lives. Yes, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, not only mentally, but in obedience and surrender of our hearts and lives unto him. So Peter knew the opinion of the people, and though it was complimentary of Jesus, it was not accurate. Jesus was more than John the Baptist. He did way more miracles than Elijah the prophet. And he was even more than a prophet. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Peter came to understand that and confess that, and that became the basis of salvation. Um, Jesus recognized that Peter had been given a divine revelation. You don't figure it out because you're super spiritual. Uh, or because you're super smart, or you're just really cool, or you're super cute. You, it's divine revelation. Anybody in here, anybody listening to this, whoever you are, you know 
Jesus' true identity, you know who he is, and you believe it, and you confess it, it has been revealed to you supernaturally by God. Amen? Amen? It is an awesome, amazing, it's the secret, ultimately, of the universe. Now, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, we need to break that down just a little bit. Um, in the Greek, when, when here is this uh, written in Greek, you are Peter, the Greek word for Peter, which is his name, is Petros. So Jesus says, you are Petros. And on this rock, now he changes the Greek word. He doesn't say Petros, but he says, and on this Petra, I will build my church. And I think I have it in your notes here. The name Petros means a little stone. But the word Petra in Greek means a large stone or a large rock. So there are some who have said, well, when Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church, that Jesus was saying, I'm going to build the whole church of Jesus Christ on the man Peter. But that's not what Jesus actually said. <laughs> Because as we'll find out, the rock, every time in the Bible, the rock is called God. The rock is a reference to God. It's, it's God himself. So what Jesus is saying is, you are, you are a little stone, so you're not the big stone. You are a chip off the old block, though. <laughs> but you're not the major stone. God is the major stone. He is saying, I'm going to build my church on the rock. Now, what's again, if you remember back to the picture I just showed you, so Jesus is asking them, who am I? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what is behind Jesus? A gigantic rock with a mouth cave with water flowing out of it that becomes the mighty Jordan River. In other words, that's the, the, the physical picture behind Jesus. Jesus is saying, that's a picture of me. I am the rock. I am the foundation. I am the basis upon which the church will be built. However, Peter, your confession of recognition of who I am by divine revelation is how I will build my church. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who will confess with their lips, Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. They shall become themselves a living stone. Did you know the Bible calls us living stones? We're, we're little stones, but we're living stones that make up the new uh, temple of God. But the foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, look with me, uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Let's read this scripture out loud. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now there is salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the, he is the cornerstone. Jesus is the large stone upon which the church will be built. There is an ancient uh, legend about when they were building the, the temple in the days back with Solomon that they, they were quarrying at another part of the mountain, the big stones that would be used, and they early in the project had quarried uh, the cornerstone, and then they sent it to the you know, builder guys, and, and so they get this one rock, this, and, and it doesn't fit anywhere. 
And they go, well, what, why did they send this rock? We don't know where it goes. We don't know what to do. And so they said, I don't know. They probably made a mistake or whatever. And so they said, well, it doesn't fit. So they just kind of rolled it over the side of the mountain and it went down into the weeds. And over the years, debris started falling upon it. Finally, they get to the end of the project and the builders go, okay, we're ready for the chief cornerstone. And they go, what are you talking about? You know, the chief cornerstone, you know, the celebration and everything. It's all finished and we just need to put the chief cornerstone in. And they said, we sent that up to you years ago. And they went, oh, yeah, there was, there was a rock. We didn't know where it was or where it fit. So we rejected it. We threw it over the side of the hill. They said, man, you better go find it because that's the chief cornerstone. And that a big search went, they found it and with great celebration came back up, put it in. That's exactly what this is saying. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. There is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And then he goes on, Jesus, to say, I will build my church. Okay? This is the first mention of the church in the New Testament. We're already in Matthew 16. It's the first time Jesus is even mentioned church. It is the Greek word ekklesia. Maybe you've heard the English word ecclesiastical. You know, oh, it's ecclesiastical stuff. That means related to the church. And that's where it comes from, the Greek word ecclesia or ecclesia. Literally, ecclesia means called out ones. If you are a member of God's house and church, you've been called out of the world, out of the domain of evil, into the house of the Lord. Amen? It is applied to the assembly, a congregation, but it's more than assembly, more than a congregation. It is also the place of counsel. It is a place of convocation where the Greek citizens governed their town or their city. It's where decisions were made with power, authority, and legality, not only for relationships from one business to another, and families, uh, one the way we would treat one family to another, uh, whether it was education, everything vital to a community, and then the resources that would be shared by everyone in common in that town or city, was decided in the ecclesia. Now, what has happened over the years, here's what I think, putting it very simply, I think that we have relegated the idea of church is just a building where people go once a week to worship God. It has been reduced from its original significance or perhaps its original intent. In the eyes of God, there really is only one king, and he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's already made the earth, so it's his because he made it. If you make it, it's yours. But then we rebelled against him. So then he had to send his son, and he bought and purchased what he originally owned because he made, but then it got ripped off by the enemy and all of mankind that went in rebellion with him. So God sent his son and bought back what was originally already his, and it's now his. He says, now it's mine forever. So he claims, I have the domain of everything. So in many ways, here, it doesn't matter what size, 
a church is. It is an ecclesia. It literally, from heaven's vantage point, you and I are all divine, heavenly ambassadors of what's going to rule and reign forever and ever and ever, and that is the kingdom of heaven. We have far more authority than we have ever exercised or used or come to understand or to appreciate. The church is bigger in the eyes of heaven than it is sometimes in our own eyes down here on earth. But God said, Jesus said, I will build my church. And then he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now gates in the Bible represent power and authority. By the way, a city gate, if you think of a gate as just a wooden gate or a metal gate or a gate that goes up and goes down. When we think of gates in modern times, we literally think of a gate. If you go to an ancient city or whatever and you come to the gates, one of the first shocking things is it's not just this little barrier or whatever. It's a, it, you sometimes we'll have four gigantic posts or pillars inside of which is a gigantic room where all of the elders would come together who had power and authority to let people in or not let them out or to make decisions or to govern or whatever. So here when Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against me, what he's saying is, I'm going to the very core center of Satan's organized power, and I'm going to knock his gates down. Then I'm gonna blow them apart, I'm gonna walk past them, literally beyond that into the gates of Hades, and I'm gonna win and save and heal and deliver as many as I want, as many as will come to me, amen? So. Again, if I could put a little picture on this, many times the church is like we're hunkered down, we're, we're kind of, and the enemy's got us and he, he's battering, but we'll, if we just hunker down, and he'll, you know, we'll, we'll be okay and protected. No, the other picture is this. We're, we're not the ones in fear, cowering, but we're the ones marching with the Lord Jesus Christ who has already gone before us to the gates of hell and in the name of Jesus, ripping those and throwing those sideways, and then going beyond into the realm where people are in sin, they're lost in addiction, fear, anguish, abuse, torment, uh, need deliverance, healing, salvation, love, forgiveness, whatever. We're going behind enemy lines in the name of Jesus Christ and setting men and women free. Hallelujah. Amen. The gates of hell shall not prevail. So Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 and 15. Let's read this out loud. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I want you to underline that phrase that says, through death he might destroy. So that you understand in a moment when we remember in communion what Jesus did on the cross, that was not the day of victory for the devil. That was the day the devil was destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. Because Jesus took our place. He took our sin. He took our punishment. And therefore, he died. But because of who he was, because number one, he never sinned, because he was pure, and because he was holy, and because he is God, manifest in the flesh, death could not hold on to him. And on the third day, he broke 
sin, he broke the devil, he broke death, and he resurrected. And now, as a resurrected man, Jesus of Nazareth, resurrected from the dead, he says, come, all who believe and trust in me shall also have everlasting life. Amen? And live forever with him. So then finally, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, and we'll close with this, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys open doors. And interestingly, Peter is the one who opened the door of faith to the Jewish people on Pentecost in Acts chapter uh, two, and, and over 3,000 got saved, but then thousands more got saved immediately after that. Then he opened the door to the Samaritans. I realize in the book of Acts it says uh, that Philip went down and he started opening the door to them, but then he said, but I need you, Peter, to come officially open it. So Peter came down and opened the door to the Samaritans, and finally, it was Peter, again, who had the keys to a Gentile named Cornelius, and he opened the door to Cornelius. His whole house got saved, and that was just the beginning of all the Gentiles, of all the 70 nations, to be able to come into the kingdom, into the family of God. But I also want to take this one step further. You and I have also been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And the keys of the kingdom of heaven is the word of God and the promises of God. And when you and I, who are the sons and daughters of God, begin, if I may say, like Nicole and Dean and their family in this story, literally walking on and claiming the promises of God, then it's like a key that opens as it is in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven comes to the earth when men and women believe in the Word of God and the promises of God and stand on it and claim it and pray it forth and then it happens. And heaven, you don't have to wait till we die and go to heaven. We can literally begin now to experience the power and the presence of the glory of heaven for those who walk in faith in Him. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.